from hospice, and so I got to know her and see her through some some tough times, and she was a wonderful woman of faith and an inspiration to me, even in just the short times that I got to see her. So um, I look forward to, to being here for that. Hopefully you can be here as well. All right, so we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 1. Um, and we're going to do this just like we did Ecclesiastes. We're going to just go section by section, verse by verse. Um, and so this first little part here, we, we see the author and we see Paul introduce himself. And I think he brings up something that, that is important for all of us. And it's a question that we're probably, most of you are asking yourself on a regular basis, but I'm going to put it before you again. And that is, who, who are you? What is your identity? How do you define yourself? And I know this is a complicated question, right? But as human beings, like we're, there's nuances, there's layers to that. I mean, just within your own family, you probably have four or five different titles, right? You may a spouse, a, you know, a, a parent, a grandparent, a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, a niece. You, you got all of these things, and there's all these different roles just within your family that you're playing. But then you have also a job, right? Some of you are teachers or tradesmen or builders or doctors or whatever. And so you then have an identity within the, the calling that God has given you. And then you have, a, you have more layers, right? You have a calling or you have an identity in the things that you love to do. So if you're a hunter, like that's part of who you are. Um, if you're more like me and a little nerdier, like a board game enthusiast, like it's part of who I am. Like we all have just all of these different things that are a part of our identity. But the most important is what we see, how we see Paul describe himself, right? That we are disciples of Jesus, right? That we are bond servants of Jesus Christ. This is the most important thing. Now, we, most of us use the term Christian. Some of us would call ourselves disciple, but I want to challenge you to look at the word that Paul uses. And I love the ESV, but it says servant, and that's not what the Greek is. The Greek is doulos, which means slave. Paul says, first and foremost, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I know we don't like that word, right? We are Americans. We have a dark history when it comes to the word of slavery, and we don't use that word very often. But this is what Paul is doing, right? There's a lot of nuances to it. We're going to explore that a little bit. But this is how we should think about our relationship to Christ, that we are in full and complete submission to him, that everything that he says is good, we should believe is good. And everything that he calls evil, we should call evil. That we should do everything that he has commanded us to do. And so this is where we start. We are a slave to Christ. This means, right, that we don't get to come in, come and go as we please. I've known many, many people over my life who say, Yes, I am a Christian, but when I'm at work, like, I don't bring that belief system into my job. Like, they're, they, they separate parts of their life out as if they can walk into the presence of Christ and walk out of it freely. And this is not, what, this is not the term, the description that Paul is giving to us. Every moment of every single day, we are in full submission to Jesus Paul says that he is his master's possession. He belongs 
to Jesus. There's a little bit more of a pointed verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 20. This is probably familiar to you. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Right? Paul puts a little bit more point on it there. Jesus paid for you with his blood on the cross. You and I, we don't have a say in the things that we do any longer. We are in full submission to Jesus Christ. Now this is paradoxical in some sense, right? Because when you become a Christian, we talk about the freedom that we find in Jesus. And that is true. There's a lot of freedom that comes in being a Christian and comes in putting your faith in the Lord. Why is that? It's because our master, our slave owner, is a perfect master. He is not out to do us harm. He is not out to control every single aspect of our life. He owns us. We are his bondservant. We are his slave. But he has given us freedom. He is doing that perfectly. He 100% perfectly loves us and wants our good and wants our sanctification as our master. He doesn't abuse us. He doesn't harm us. He is constantly pushing us and prodding us to be better, to be closer resemblances of him. So we have become slaves of Christ, and in that we have freedom. But let's be really, let's understand something really important. It's not that we came, it's not as if we came from a land of freedom where we could do everything and anything we wanted, but now we've submitted under the headship of Jesus, now we have somebody who is telling us what to do. You see, the book of Romans later will tell us that we have traded in our slavery to sin to be the bondservant of Christ. You see, here's the thing. We all serve something. We are all slaves to something. You can either be a slave to sin, the thing that is out to destroy you, to devour you, to lead you down a path of destruction... Or you can submit yourself to Christ, the perfect master who is bringing life and joy and grace and peace and kindness to your life. Like You have a choice, right? You, you, can, you can be the slave of sin or you can be the slave of the great one true God and the master. How many of you people, how many, how many of you know people who say that they're not religious. It's a statement I hear like over and over. When we, when we work at the hospital, we go into somebody's room. Hi, I'm the chaplain. Oh, I'm not religious. Nope, nope, no thank you. Right? But this, that's, that's not true. That's not, that's not true. Everybody is religious. We're all worshiping something. We, we all put our faith in something. Even the person who tells you, I'm an atheist. I just believe in hard facts and reason. Yeah, but how do you believe in that reason? With your reasoning power, right? Every, when you get down to the core, to the foundation of every worldview. You see, people, people lay this claim against Christianity. Oh, it's circular reasoning. You believe in the Bible because the Bible says it is true. You can't do that. That's circular reasoning. The Bible is proving the Bible, so you've got to give me something else. 
Yeah, but a person who believes in reason does it with their reason. They are in circular reason. Everybody does this. When we get to the, the core, the foundation of our faith, of whatever it is that we're worshiping, whatever it is we have submitted ourselves to, it requires faith. And so you have a choice. You can submit yourself to Satan and sin, the thing that will destroy you, or you can submit yourself to Jesus who will bring you life. Now I understand this word sort of brings about a bad connotation. You might be wincing sort of every time that I say it. Slave, slavery, like we don't like this. We have a history, right? We have a history of extreme sin when it comes to this. But I'm challenging you this morning. Like Paul is not writing in, in context of American slavery, right? That's not even something, it hasn't happened yet. He, he's writing in a fully different context. And so if you hear that word and you think, I don't want to define myself that way, I challenge you, get over the fact that it makes you feel uncomfortable, right? It should. American slavery, that was sinful and that was bad. But what Paul is talking about is something far different. This is how, I think it is necessary that we think of ourselves in this way. Because if not, we just think, oh yeah, I'll take this part, but I'm going to leave that part. I don't like that. I don't, I don't like these parts of the Bible, so, you know, I have the freedom. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to take the parts I like. I'm going to obey those parts. But the parts that I don't like, the ones that make me uncomfortable, the ones when I read it and think, yeesh, like I wish Jesus had not said that. We're still submitting to those statements too, right? If we recognize that we are his bondservant, his slave, that everything we do is from him, we don't get to ignore things that we don't like. We don't get to read a verse and be like, don't like that one. We, we have to submit. We're being called to that. When that thing challenges the way that you're thinking or the thing, the opinion that you've been holding for however long, you have to change the way that you think because we are in full submission to Jesus with every single part of our life. Second thing Paul tells us is that he is an apostle. Now, this is unique because the word apostle is somebody. I mean, when you look back to Acts chapter 1, Judas, right? He is, he, he's betrayed Jesus. He hangs himself. He's no longer a part. The apostles come together and say, we got to find a replacement for him. The requirements are they were a disciple of Jesus. They were an eyewitness to the resurrection, right? These are the things that are required to be an apostle, and they have to be personally called by Jesus, let me just point something out to you. Um, when's the last time you read that? Do you remember how they chose between the two guys? They drew straws, right? We look at them and we're like, what? <laughs> Why did, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't spend all night in prayer? You just go like, ah, okay, here we go. We got two guys. But, phew, straw, straw. In other words, the apostles had 100% faith and trust in God that God was going to pick the right man. And I say this because we are embarking, you guys, we are, as a church are embarking on bringing up, raising up, examining new leaders for the church. If you, please don't be deluded to think that the men who are going to do that examination are going to be flawless, right? The church, you guys, we have to trust the Lord. Now, I don't think we're going to draw straws, right? But we're going to, in this process, like this is, we have to be able to trust God that he's going to lead and that he's going to guide and he's going to direct the people who are doing this examination, right? It's really, really important. So Paul calls himself an apostle. 
But what's interesting is that Paul was not a disciple of Jesus. He was not a man who followed after Jesus. Um, I don't know in what form Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, if it was a spirit or if he was flesh. I mean, I don't know. But we do know that he was called directly by Christ. And so he is able to call himself an apostle. And in, I think it's in Galatians. He says he's an apostle, one untimely born, right? He was, he was a little older, like he was a little after Jesus' time. And what this means is that Paul is a mouthpiece for God. He has been sent out by Jesus directly. In other words, the book of Romans, though written by Paul, this is God's word. We're not saying, well, Paul was a pretty smart guy, so, you know, we're going to, yeah, we submit to Jesus, but this is a book written by Paul, so we can take or leave what we want. No, this is a book written by God himself through Paul. This is the scriptures. So in the same way that we fully submit to Jesus, we fully submit to God's word. Because this is coming from Paul. And the third thing he tells us is that he is separated out for the gospel. So one thing I will say, I don't think it's a problem here. We can take on the identity of being a slave, and we can even take on this third identity. Uh, my understanding is that we do not and should not be taking on the identity of an apostle. Right? We, there, there's a movement within the Christian church, um, within some denominations, that claim that, they, that you can become an apostle. And you know, you know it's fake when you go on their website and it says only $2.99, right? That's it. Just three easy payments. And you, we will claim and, and make you an apostle. <laughs> no good in case you were wondering it's not healthy right it's not, it's not a good thing um so but the third thing right he separated out for the gospel this is an interesting distinction right because we know that this is not all that paul does right he does a lot of traveling he does a lot of ministering but he's also a tent maker and in fact once again if you look at the book of galatians after he got this calling he went back to where he was from for 13 years before he ever came back and presented himself before Peter and the, and the rest of the apostles. The reason that's important is that Paul is not a full-time minister. This distinction is not just for the pastors of the local churches or the men who, who are in full-time ministry. This is for every single one of you. We are all set apart separated out for the gospel now that looks different for each one of you a good friend of mine in Durango I don't think that anybody has ever crossed his path that he did not share the gospel with he is an evangelist God has given him a gift to go out and meet everybody and doesn't matter who they are everyone he meets every stranger everyone who walks by him who has a heartbeat hears the gospel out of this guy's mouth it's just, that's who he is. This is what God has called him to. When, when he takes on the identity of being set apart for the gospel, that's the gifting that God gave him. Does that mean that every single one of you and myself, should we all be this way? I don't think so, right? I think evangelism is a gifting from the Lord. And it looks different in all of our lives. For some of you, it means Maine, right? In front of the old Starbucks, preaching the gospel through a bullhorn. If that's what God has called you to do, more power to you. Go and do it. But for some of you, your evangelism looks like the little people whom God put in your home, right? Your children. Those are the people who need to hear the gospel. And that's your calling. And everywhere in between. This is not a calling. The separation out for the gospel, being called to preach is not just for the full-time ministers. It is for all of us. 
I'm pretty sure probably all of you have heard the debate versus like this relational ministry versus um, going out and preaching to the stranger as if these things are in opposition to one another, right? Both of these things are true. People have these gifts. No matter, I mean, no matter what you are, where you are in your life, God is calling you to this. I mean, think about it. Paul focuses, where is his calling to? The Gentiles, right? God calls him to go and minister to the Gentiles. Does that mean that he never speaks to his Jewish brothers about the gospel? I'm sure that he does, right? He even talks about going into the temple, almost like on his off time, like this is his hobby. He's preaching to the Gentiles in, you know, like in the market, and then, okay, finally, that's, I, I did what God has called me to do. Now I'm going to go to the temple and preach to my people. And so what I mean by this is if that is your calling, if your calling is to preach in the home, that doesn't mean that God won't call you to preach to the stranger every so often. Our calling encompasses both. We might have a main area where God is calling us to. Your children might be your main ministry. But that doesn't mean that when you leave here, if God is prompting you, if he's, if he's guiding you and telling you, say something, pray for the waitress that you have at your restaurant after church today, that you don't, oh, well, God, my calling is just to my children. That's it. Be open to the prompting and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Because all of us are called to the entire world. Some of us in a full-time ministry, some of us not. And so I ask you this morning, after we read these three things, what is it? What is your identity? I think this is a, it's a question worth considering all of the time. It's complex. It's important. But here's another question, and I think maybe even a more important question. Paul gets to it. Are you ashamed of your identity? If you say, yes, I agree with you. I, I see myself as a bondservant. I am a slave to Jesus. I am set apart for the gospel. Are you ashamed of that? Do you shy away from talking about your faith when you know that it's a perfect opportunity? When you feel that prompting of the Holy Spirit, do you shy away from it? Are you ashamed of it? And here's the thing. Only you can answer that question, right? I I don't know, because it's not that, oh, well, if you don't preach the gospel to everyone you meet, that must mean that you're ashamed of it. Only you know, right? Only you know when the Holy Spirit prompts you, and you shy away, and you're not willing to do it. Matthew 10, 32 to 33, Jesus tells us, the man who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge him before my Father. But the one who doesn't acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge him before my Father. Now, this is not a graceless command. It's not that if you have ever felt God calling you to and you, you chickened out or you were shy or you were ashamed or whatever it is that caused you to stay silent, Jesus is like, well, you punched your own ticket. Like, he's going to forgive you of that the same way he's going to forgive you of all of your sins. But this is a command, right? This is what Jesus is calling us to. Do not be ashamed when God calls you to speak to somebody. And then Paul quickly shifts, right? He quickly shifts from talking about himself to talking, to talking about the gospel. How was it given to us? It's given to us through prophecies. It's given to us through the scriptures. I ask you, how often do you fall into the trap of seeing the Old Testament 
as the angry, wrathful God who is bringing down hellfire on all the people who disobeyed him. But the New Testament is Jesus, and he's here, and he's the one who's loving, and he's the one who's kind and forgiving. And we have two different aspects of God being put out in the scriptures. And we think of the Old Testament differently than we think of the New Testament. For a long time in my life, that's how I understood the two. Nobody explained to me that that's not true, right? That God, in the Old Testament, what Paul is talking about here, how do we know that the gospel is true? The prophecies, the scriptures, to him, the scriptures are the Old Testament. That's where the gospel has been revealed to him over and over and over again. Just... I didn't even look it up. I just was thinking about all the places that I know of just in Genesis where I know that the gospel is extremely clearly preached. And these were, these were just a few. That I, that, so obviously, right, the first one, Genesis 3, where Satan looks to the snake and he says, look, the seed of the woman, he's going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel, right? That's the first instance that we have that the gospel is told to us. Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham. What does God say to Abraham when he tells, go into the land and through your offspring, what? I will bless the entire world. Now, if you flip a few pages and you read the story of Isaac, it wasn't him, right? It wasn't Isaac that blessed the entire world. Who's he talking about, right? Once again, Galatians. Maybe we should study Galatians. But Paul in Galatians says, That offspring, that's Jesus. The the man that that God was talking to when he said that to Abraham, right? That is Jesus. And a few chapters later, Genesis 15. I know I've talked to you guys about this story. It's the craziest story. If you don't understand what's going on, you you read it and you think, what in the world is God doing when he tells Abraham, right? Go to sleep and he has this dream and all these animals are cut in half and they're late and they're placed in two piles. And then what? Smoke and fire come between the two pieces. And if you read that story without the, the context, you think, what, what in the world is going on, right? But this is how people made deals with one another. They would take animals, they'd cut them in half, they'd make them in two piles. And the people would walk through and they'd say, if I, if I welch on my part of this deal, of this bargain... Let me be like the animals, right? Let me be destroyed if I don't uphold my end of the agreement. And God is represented by smoke and fire over and over and over again in the Bible. And smoke and fire come between the pieces. God says, I will uphold my end of the bargain, that I will bless the entire world. And Abraham doesn't have to walk through. It's a one-sided covenant where God says, I will do everything. Here are the promises. I give you everything. And you don't have to do anything but repent and believe. It continues on, right? God wrestles with Jacob. He looks down at him. And he gives him a new name on the spot. He changes his identity on the spot. Paul says that the gospel has been revealed to us over and over again. Through the prophecies to the Old Testament. The New Testament is simply a fulfillment of that. God never changed his mind. The gospel was the plan from the very beginning, from the very first sin. And this gospel that he preaches, Paul says, it comes from God. It doesn't come from him. So right here, the very beginning, Paul is telling us, look, this letter that he's writing and all the other letters, this is not 
him giving his opinion, because if that's all it was, kind of pointless, right? But this is God's word. This is the gospel coming from God directly. This makes me wonder, do you, or have you, or are you in this place where you have maybe meshed the gospel with your own opinions or with the ideas of this world and sort of come up with a hybrid, come up with your own gospel. And what I mean, example is, I've met many people who who would tell me, well, if you see a radar movie, that's sin. There's potential for it, right? There's potential that if if you put something in front of your face that would tempt you into sin or that would cause you to sin, that it would be sinful for you to do that. But to make a blanket statement that the Bible doesn't make, you do this thing, it's sin. We're in a Baptist church, right? The Baptists really love to harp on alcohol. You drink alcohol, that's sin. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says the opposite of that. Now, the Bible does tell us if you get drunk, it's sin. Okay, let's follow that. Let's follow the rules. Let's follow the commands of God. But to make up our own commands... We are making up a new gospel. That's not the gospel that comes from God. We don't take away from it and we don't add to it. We preach, we believe, we submit to the gospel that is given to us by God. So I ask you again, what is your identity? Who are you? Are you following the gospel that is laid out for you? Are you submitting yourself to Christ If you define yourself as a Christian, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, I challenge you, follow his commands, not the things. Because here's, right, we've all heard of what is good old boy theology, right? My grandfather had lots of good words of wisdom, but they didn't all quite jive with scripture. And so I need to be willing to discard the things that I know to be untrue. They might sound good, they might sound wise, but the Bible teaches me something else. I have to be willing and this is, there's been an ongoing conversation like the whole time I've been here, just this idea of Reformed theology and what does that mean and what is going on and is this a Reformed church and what does it even mean to be Reformed? And there are a few certain doctrines that go hand in hand with Reformed theology, but at its base, at its core, what it means is that if you have an idea, if you have an opinion, if you have a thought and you read the Bible and the Bible tells you something opposite, You reform it, right? You reform the way you think, to reform what you believe to match Scripture. Now, I don't don't want to harp on the Baptist because I grew up in a Baptist church. I am a Baptist minister. Like, that is how I define myself. That's part of my identity. But there are things within the Baptist church, there are things within Baptist tradition that sometimes get elevated above Scripture. And we can't do that. If we're a Baptist church, Reformed Baptist church, that means that constantly, every time we open the Bible as a church, and if we see something that flies in the face, a Baptist tradition, or something that this church has held for its whole, its whole history, we have to be willing to say, no more. We're not going to hold on to that anymore. We're going to reform ourselves to be more like Christ, to be more like God's revealed word. If that word scares you, I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep explaining it over and over again because I don't want you to be afraid of the word or afraid of the idea because that's what it means. 
That we're just constantly rethinking, reshaping our thoughts and our opinions and our theology to match what the Bible has to say. Okay, so who is this gospel about, right? It's been revealed from God, and of course it's about Jesus. But Paul does something really interesting. What does he do? He says, who is Jesus? He is a descendant of David in the flesh, but he's also a descendant of the Spirit. He is trying to point out to us this duality of nature that Christ has, that people argued about for a really long time, and people still want to argue about it, right? How can he, I mean, and it's a good question, the first time you tell your kids that Jesus was fully man and fully God, they'll be like, wait, what? Like, I don't, I don't get that. How can, he can't be both. He must have just been one or the other. I don't understand how he can be both. And this is what Paul is trying to communicate to us, right? He is a descendant of David. In fact, he had to be a descendant of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of these other instances where God gives us the gospel in the Old Testament and the covenant that he makes with David, what does he say? Your descendant will sit on the throne forever. Now we just heard for six months a lot of the wisdom of Solomon, but Solomon dies. He doesn't sit on that throne forever. When God makes that promise To David, he's not talking about Solomon or his grandson or his great-grandson. He is talking about Jesus because there's no throne in Israel right now where a descendant of David is sitting. If that were meant to be a literal descendant of David, grandson all the way down lineage-wise, physically sitting on a throne in Israel, then God is a liar. We should throw it all out. But if he meant something else, which he did, if he meant that Jesus was going to be sitting on the throne forever then Jesus has to be born of the flesh. He has to be in the lineage of David. Or once again, God is a liar and we can't trust what he's saying, but he's not, right? We know that. You look at the beginning of Matthew and you see the lineage and you see the the descendants coming down and we see that Jesus is in the line of David. And at the same time, he had to be born of the Spirit, right? Because in Adam, we are all sinners, So he was born of the Spirit and he was born of flesh. So I ask you again, where do you find your identity? Is it in flesh only? Or have you been reborn in the Spirit of God? You see, when we talk about sharing the identity of Christ, and we're talking about being like Christ, even this applies to us. We all know that struggle every day where our flesh is crying out, tempting us to sin, and it's, and it's leading us down a path of destruction, and we want to do what our flesh and our instinct is calling us to. But when we are in Christ, we recognize like we have to put that to death, and we have to follow the Spirit of God. This comes up a lot whenever I go to Texas and we visit our family. We get to be around extended family in particular. So I see like in-laws and you know cousins and you know, nieces and nephews and all of that. And it's so great and I love all of my family and I love to be with them. And every time I go and I see people that I haven't seen in six months or I see my, my little nephews and I'm like, holy cow, what happened? Like you're a foot taller than the last time I saw you because some of them I see once a year. And there's this always, there's always this little twinge of guilt, like, 
oh man, I should, like, I should, I should be more a part of their life. I, maybe we should move back to Texas so that we can be with our family. And this, this idea, right, that, that my fleshly family is the most important thing. I'm not saying that my family is unimportant. I'm not saying that family is bad. But I am saying that the Spirit of God has called me to be here, right? To live in this area, to be ministering here. And that means that I don't get to see them, right? This flesh and spirit, I have a flesh family and I have a spiritual family. The church that God has called me to and put me in. And these are important things. And so there's always this war in so many different ways in my flesh and my spirit at battle with one another. You see, to be closer to my flesh, my family that's of the flesh, I would have to move and I would have to deny my spiritual family that God has called me to. And so, you know, that's where we make the choice, right? Am I going to do what God has called me to? What is the most important thing? Is the flesh going to win out or is the spirit going to win out? And this, obviously, this applies in so many different ways. This is the way that I see it happening in my life the most often. And so what I want to ask you this morning is this same question. I want to ask you to consider deeply this week, where is your identity? What is it? Where is it found? Where is it rooted? I'm just going to challenge you. Each morning, ponder this question in different contexts. What is your identity where you work? What is your identity within your family? What is your identity with, as a parent or as a spouse? What is your identity within your friendships? And how can God be at the center of all of those things? So tomorrow morning, ponder whichever one you want, wherever you feel like it's the weakest. What, how can God be at the core of my identity in everything that I do as I go to work? What can I do? Where can I minister? How can I be the shining light of Jesus in the place that I work? How can I be that in my family? How can I be that as the father of my kids or as the husband to my spouse or whatever it is, right? Where is it that it's weak? And ask God to strengthen you. And the last thing this morning is why would we put God there? Why put God at the center of everything that we do? Paul tells us in verse 5, he has given us his grace. It's a simple statement. But without his grace, we are forever lost. We are doomed to spend eternity in hell because we cannot do anything to earn our salvation. With God's grace, he has given us forgiveness. He's given us mercy. All of these things working together. The reason that we put God at the center of everything that we do is because God deserves to be there. He has saved you from yourself. He has saved you from the sin and the destruction that was in you, that was in your flesh, and he has given you new life. He's given us his grace and it is found in Jesus. And that's why our identity is found in Jesus in everything. Not just on Sundays or not just when you're with your Christian friends or not just when you're at Bible study, but every moment of every day, your identity is a slave to Jesus in full submission to him and everything that he does. If that means that you're going to get reprimanded or you're going to get fired at work, so be it. Submit yourself to the Lord first. Don't worry about all of the other things. That is our core of who we are. So when we do this, right, we're not just doing it for ourselves, but we are doing it for his name. And as Paul tells us, not just 
for ourselves, but for the sake of all the nations. When we act in accordance with God's will, we are bringing a light to those around us. Now, you may not be called to go halfway across the world, but guess what? Every single one of you knows somebody. You're the, you might be the only Christian in their life. You know the people you work with. I don't, I don't know those people, right? And the person sitting behind you, they probably don't know those people. And you don't know the people that I work with, right? I have people that I work with that you probably will never interact with. And my neighbor, you, you probably don't know them, and you probably will never know them, but I know them. That's my calling. That's my light to be to that person. There are people in every single one of you, you guys know, and you might be, probably are, in many of the cases, the only Christian that they ever interact with. So you may never go to Africa, but you are shining your light to all the nations in the fact that you have that sphere of influence around you and you can be a shining light. You can be a witness to those people within your sphere. So I want you to ponder, I challenge you this morning, ask yourself, who are you? Where is your identity? Are you a slave to Jesus? Are you fully submitting to him? Are you serving him no matter what comes before you? Or are you a slave to your flesh? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving your sin? If that's true for you this morning, if you're saying, no, I've never submitted myself to Christ, Christ will liberate you. He will bring you out of the slavery of your sin, and he will bring you into his family. He will love you. He will give you grace. The only thing he asks for us is that we repent, that we ask for that forgiveness, and he will give it. He will grant it to anybody. He loves you. He wants to see you be a part of his family. He is welcoming you in to be his, his brother, right? The, the son of the father. So I'm telling you, now is the time to do this. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, trade in your slavery to your sin and to yourself and submit yourself to God, the one, the good, the true master, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful for the salvation that you offer us, for the forgiveness that you give to us. We, we don't deserve it. Your grace has inspired us to worship you and you alone. Your love and your kindness has given us a reason to give up everything else in this world in service to you. Lord, help us to fully embrace who we are as a bondservant to you, as set apart for the gospel, Lord, that we can go out into this world and be a shining light to all of those who don't know who you are. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.